G'day, welcome to Partakers. This is a series of studies called Luke Looks Back, based in the Gospel of Luke, and is presented to us by Roger Kirby. Over to you, Roger. This is study 24, about Luke chapter 19, verses 28 to 48. We will title this, The Triumphal Entry into Jerusalem. Jesus cannot complete his mission without entering Jerusalem and confronting the authorities there. This he does, first with actions, and then with words. We are moving towards the culmination of the life of Jesus. First, we read chapter 19, verses 28 to 38. After Jesus had said this, he went on ahead, going up to Jerusalem. As he approached Bethphage and Bethany, At the hill called the Mount of Olives, he sent two of his disciples, saying to them, Go to the village ahead of you, and as you enter it, you will find a colt tied there, which no one has ever ridden. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, Why are you untying it? Tell him, The Lord needs it. Those who were sent ahead went and found it just as he had told them. As they were untying the colt, its owner asked them, Why are you untying the colt? They replied, The Lord needs it. They brought it to Jesus, threw their cloaks on the colt, and put Jesus on it. As he went along, people spread their cloak on the road. When he came near the place where the road goes down, the Mount of Olives, the whole crowd of disciples began joyfully to praise God in loud voices for all the miracles they had seen. Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. It seems likely that Jesus had made some arrangements the twelve knew nothing about. Perhaps he had two sets of supporters, the apostles in spiritual matters, and a group of organisers or deacons. Question 1. What makes that a reasonable thing to say? Are there any alternative explanations? There is something a bit mysterious about the account of Jesus sending two disciples to get the cult. It is hard to be sure, but there does seem to have been a prior arrangement made by Jesus that the two disciples did not know the details of. To think that Jesus knew through his divine powers that the cult would be there is probably to overemphasize the divine in Jesus and forget that he was also human. The account of the way Jesus entered Jerusalem is full of hints of Old Testament passages. Three of the most important are 1 Kings chapter 1 verses 33 to 35 which has David saying, Take your Lord's servants with you, and have Solomon my son mount my own mule, and take him down to Gihon. There have Zadok the priest, and Nathan the prophet anoint him king over Israel. Blow the trumpet, and shout, Long live King Solomon! Then you are to go up with him, and he is to come and sit on my throne, and reign in my place. I have appointed him ruler over Israel and Judah. 
And then there's Psalm 118, verses 26 and 27. They read, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. From the house of the Lord we bless you. The Lord is God. With bows in hand, join in the festal procession. Zechariah, chapter 9 and verse 9, reads like this. Rejoice greatly, daughter Zion. Shout, daughter Jerusalem. See, your king comes to you, righteous and having salvation, lowly and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. Each of these is important in that Jesus did things that ensured that he fulfilled these prophecies. Jesus often fulfilled prophecies without having any apparent control on what happened, but these are done totally deliberately. Question 2. Why did Jesus make sure these prophecies were fulfilled? Why did he make his entry into Jerusalem in such a public spectacle? He did not always do this. In John chapter 7 of verse 10 we read that after his brothers had left the feast in Jerusalem, he went also, not publicly, but in secret. Jesus knew he would die in Jerusalem. He did not want to die quietly. This was the most important event in the history of mankind. It had to be witnessed by many people. Those people needed to have all the necessary and sufficient evidence that he was indeed the Messiah, the Anointed One, even if they did not believe the evidence. Question 3. What will each of the following have been expecting? First, an ordinary member of the crowd. Then, one of the disciples. One of the priests, lawyers or leaders of the people. And a watching centurion of the Roman guard in charge of keeping the peace. This is something interesting to use our imaginations on. I reckon a member of the crowd would have been caught up in the excitement, possibly not knowing much about Jesus, but sensing that something important was happening. One of the disciples would have realised the significance of what was happening, have been exceedingly excited and wanting to be ready for anything, including fighting. One of the leaders of the people would have been annoyed and worried, concerned that there might be a full-blown riot before long. A centurion would have been making sure his sword slid easily out of its scabbard, that his men were all lined up and waiting, and relishing the prospect of a fight against a largely unarmed crowd. Luke's account continues, with Jesus prophesying the total destruction of the city and the destruction of the temple, all of which actually happened in A.D. 70, just about the time Luke was writing, and involved the slaughter of most of the inhabitants of the city and the surrounding countryside. So we're now going to read chapter 19, verses 39 to 48. Some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to Jesus, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. I tell you, he replied, if they keep quiet, the stones will cry out. As he approached Jerusalem and saw the city, he wept over it. 
and said, If you, even you, had only known on this day what would bring you peace, but now it is hidden from your eyes. The days will come upon you when your enemies will build an embankment against you and encircle you and hem you in on every side. They will dash you to the ground, you and the children within your walls. They will not leave one stone on another because you did not recognize the time of God's coming to you. Then he entered the temple area and began driving out those who were selling. It is written, he said to them, My house will be a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of robbers. Every day he was teaching at the temple, but the chief priests and teachers of the law and the leaders among the people were trying to kill him. Yet they could not find any way to do it, because all the people hung on his words. When Jesus said in verse 46, My house will be a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of robbers, he was quoting a combination of one verse from Isaiah and one verse from Jeremiah. I'll read those, but rather more verses than that single one, because in both cases the context adds important ideas to those in the words Jesus used. Listen out carefully for those extra ideas which form the next question. Here then is Isaiah chapter 56 verses 3 to 8. Let no foreigner who has bound himself to the Lord say, The Lord will surely exclude me from his people. And let not any eunuch complain, I am only a dry tree. For this is what the Lord says, To the eunuchs who keep my Sabbaths, who choose what pleases me, and hold fast to my covenant, to them I will give within my temple and its walls a memorial and a name, better than sons and daughters. I will give them an everlasting name that will not be cut off. And foreigners who bind themselves to the Lord to serve him, to love the name of the Lord and to worship him, all who keep the Sabbath without desecrating it and who hold fast to my covenant, these I will bring to my holy mountain and give them joy in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and sacrifices will be accepted on my altar. And then the words that are quoted by Jesus, For my house will be called a house of prayer for all nations. The Sovereign Lord declares, He who gathers the exiles of Israel, I will gather still others to them, besides those already gathered. So the first part of question four is this. What extra ideas are there in those verses that would have been of interest to the more knowledgeable people in the crowd? Isaiah includes both foreigners and eunuchs, those who were excluded from the temple worship that governed all of life at Jerusalem in the feast days. Next, we read from Jeremiah chapter 7, verses 3 to 11. This is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel, says. Reform your ways and your actions, and I will let you live in this place. 
Do not trust in deceptive words and say, This is the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord. If you really change your ways and your actions and deal with each other justly, if you do not oppress the alien, the fatherless or the widow, and do not shed innocent blood in this place, and if you do not follow other gods to your own harm, then I will let you live in this place, in the land I gave your forefathers, for ever and ever. But look, you are trusting in deceptive words that are worthless. Will you steal and murder, commit adultery and perjury, burn incense to Baal, and follow other gods you have not known? And then come and stand before me in this house which bears my name, and say, We are safe, safe to do all these detestable things. Has this house which bears my name, and here are the words that Jesus quotes, become a den of robbers to you? But I have been watching, declares the Lord. The same question. What extra ideas are there in those verses that would have been of interest to the more knowledgeable people in the crowd? Jeremiah places conditions of good behaviour on temple worshippers. He is saying it is not enough just to be a Jew or an Israelite and to rejoice in the temple. Jesus was saying it was not who you were, but what you were that mattered. If your worship at the temple was to be of any significance at all before God, it was your life of faith that mattered, not whether you were a Jew or not, or any particular sort of Jew. Perhaps Jesus and his disciples were just entering the court of the Gentiles, the great outer court of the temple, from which the disabled, the eunuchs, and foreigners were excluded as he spoke. No race or language is any more important than any other to the Christian. The Bible Jesus used was already a translation from the Hebrew to the Greek. We rejoice in the translation of the Bible into more and more languages. The way Jesus clears the temple in these verses is a symbolic picture of the destruction of the temple. So that destruction was not accidental or due to the will of the Roman general, when in fact it happened about 40 years later. Question 5. What then is the significance of the temple ruins in Jerusalem now, for Jews, for Muslims, for Christians? The temple ruins are of absolutely no real significance for anybody any longer, except as interesting relics, of something which is now meaningless. And that is a particularly good place to end this study, I think. Thanks, Roger. This series is on every Sunday, but as usual on Partakers, www.partakers.co.uk, there is something new available every day to inspire your Christian life.